This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I'm in Costa Rica, or Nicaragua, one or the other, I'm not sure. At least I'm not sure as I record this. I mention this because there's a possibility I'll be reporting in from somewhere in Central America before this show's over. One thing is certain, we need to start the show as we like to do with On This Date in History, which today is December 16th. It was on December 16th in 1653 that Oliver Cromwell assumed dictatorial powers over England, Scotland, and Ireland, having been granted the title of Lord Protector of the Commonwealth. On about three or four occasions on this show, we've mentioned how we need to tell the story about Cromwell. We may give a five-minute version of it in our third segment today. We'll see. On this date in 1773, a group of Massachusetts colonists, disguised as Mohawk Indians, I'm not sure that fooled anybody, boarded three British tea ships and dumped 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor. The Boston Tea Party was protesting the British Parliament's Tea Act of 1773, a bill designed to save the faltering East India Company by greatly lowering its tea tax and granting it a virtual monopoly on the American tea trade. The low tax allowed the East India Company to undercut tea smuggled into America by Dutch traders. Many colonists viewed it as another example of taxation tyranny, which frankly sounds a lot more screwed up than I remembered the story. So Parliament lowered the East India Company's tea tax, special favor to powerful interests which allowed that powerful interest to in turn screw the public. Hmm, I guess some things never change. And speaking of British-American relations, it was on December 16th in 1913 that a young English actor reported for work at Keystone Studios for the first time. The actor was quite a gifted pantomime artist, and his name was Charles Chaplin. In his first film, Making a Living, he, he played a mustached villain with a monocle. Only in his next film, Kid Auto Races at Venice, did Chaplin assume the character with which we associate him, the, the character he called the little fellow. Chaplin won the hearts of American moviegoers and pretty much everybody else. Became the best-loved actor of the silent film era. You could argue probably any film era. I do want to note in way of follow-up that I dropped by in the Niles a few weeks back, uh, which is now District of Fremont, and said hello to David Keene, whom I'm proud to say we had on this program long before he was discovered by Morley Safer in 60 Minutes. To David was as gracious and as informative as ever as he showed me the old silent uh, studio where Charlie Chaplin himself had stood to watch movies back in 1915, which was frankly a, a pretty cool thing to contemplate. I mean, being in the same room that Charlie was in and all. And curiously, uh, he filmed The Tramp in Niles, in Niles Canyon, which I'm sure uh, is familiar to many of you who have driven between the Bay Area and, uh, and the Valley. Mr. McMillan and I are going to make another field trip uh, down to go visit uh, uh, that studio and sometime next year, and we'll, it's going to be a fun trip, I'm sure. But as I was saying, it was on December 16th, in the year 1915, that Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity was first published. And I was surprised to learn, as we reported on last week's program, that for the longest time, even up to today, there are relativity deniers. 
The Nazis didn't think too much of Einstein, being that he was a Jew. And it was Nazi forces on December 16th in 1944 that engaged the Battle of the Bulge. The Germans launched their last major offensive in an effort to push the Allied front west from northern France into northwestern Belgium. The battle was so-called because the Germans created a bulge around the Ardennes forest and pushing through the American defensive line. It was the largest battle fought on the western front. It only delayed the inevitable a short period of time. The Nazis fell by April of 1945. It is curious to note that the German people suffered more casualties from July of 44, at the time of the failed attempt to assassinate Hitler and the end of the war in April 45 than they had up till then. It's sad to, uh, to contemplate what good might have been accomplished by that attempted assassination by Klaus von Stauffenberg in July of 44. Would have not only saved a lot of German lives, it would have saved some of our uh, great uncles and uncles and other relatives who, who died in, uh, in World War II. On a happier note, it was on December 16th, 13 years ago, 1997, that the U.S. spacecraft Galileo flew to within 124 miles of the surface of the Jovian moon Europa. Its photographs of volcanic ice flows suggest that there is a vast ocean lying below the surface of Europa. We some, someday must go there and visit and drill through the ice and see what we can find down under there's widespread speculation that we might find life under the ice, and uh, it's worth taking a look. Our quote of the day, and these are words we live by from George Santayana, is, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Our quip slash quote of the day comes from John F. Kennedy, who once said, the great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate contrived and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. And our joke of the day also comes from John F. Kennedy, who once said, A man walks into a bar. He loses his wallet there. Actually, I'm making that up. There was no joke from JFK. And by the way, we stole that from a comedian whose name escapes me, but we will give him proper attribution on next week's show. Our joke today comes from Ben Hecht, who once said, Trying to determine what is going on in the world by reading newspapers is like trying to tell the time by watching the second hand of a clock. Actually, that's more of a quip than a joke, isn't it? Let's see if we can get a proper joke. For our joke of the day, we'll go to the immortal George Carlin. Specifically from Brain Droppings, where George mentioned people who should be phased out. According to the late, great George Carlin, people who should be phased out include guys who wink when they're kidding. <laughs> also, guys in their 50s who flash me the peace sign and really mean it. Also, guys who want to shake my hand even though we just saw each other an hour ago. Also, guys who wear suits all day and think an earring makes them cool at night. And naturally, George would think that uh, guys who wink and give me the peace sign simultaneously, well, they should be phased out. Also, people who say knock-knock when entering a room and beep-beep when someone's in their path. George thought guys who can juggle but only a little bit needed to be phased out. Along with people who gave their house or car a name. And it goes without saying, people who give their genitals a name. <laughs> I like this one. Athletes and coaches who give more than 100%. 
And lastly, guys who flash me the thumbs up sign, especially if they're winking and making the peace sign with the other hand. Our stat of the day, the portion of American births that occurred outside marriage in 2008 was 41%, the highest figure ever recorded. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apparently it was a good week a few weeks back for clarifications. When in the wake of the Pope admitting that uh, there may be a role for condoms to prevent the spread of HIV, a proclamation praised by public health figures around the world. But uh, the clarification comes in from the statement of Mark Silk, described as director of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, who said... It's important to recognize this is not some blanket opening of the door for married people to use artificial birth control. (laughs) To that we say, hell no. If married people start using artificial birth control, that could mark the end of Western civilization. And I guess they're calling it artificial birth control to segregate it from natural birth control, known as the rhythm method. Of course, you're probably aware people who practice the rhythm method have another name, which is usually parents. We have to confess, we have no idea why it is Mark Silk (laughs) is reputedly an authority on Catholic doctrine because he's director of, of the Leonard Greenberg Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. No, that was Norman Greenbaum, Mr. McMillan. I do know that Mr. Greenbaum was of the Jewish persuasion, but became Christian. Uh, As to Mr. Greenberg, no idea. Where were we? Oh, good, bad, and the ugly. Yes, it was a bad week a few weeks ago for texting. When a study by researchers at Case Western Reserve University in Ohio studied 4,000 students at 20 high schools and concluded that teens who send more than 120 texts a day are far more likely to engage in sex, smoke cigarettes, abuse alcohol or drugs, and cut school. I don't know, that reminds me of my high school. We didn't have texting back then. The researchers speculated that uh, these students' fixation on technology may not actually cause troublesome behavior itself, but may simply spring from common underlying traits, such as impulsivity or susceptibility to peer pressure. Frankly, I think you should be allowed to send 120 texts per year. I think that's a reasonable quota. Let's do the math. You're up 8, 16 hours a day, presumably. 120 texts, so you're sending a text every 7 minutes, all day long? Study author Scott Frank told the New York Times, This is a red flag for parents. They need to be monitoring and taking charge of the choices their kids are making. Oh yeah, stand over Junior's shoulder while he's texting and tell him he's texting too often. That's a good solution. I don't know. This study may come from the news you can't really use department. It was an ugly week for reforming Wall Street's image. Last month, when an article in the LA Times appeared by Nathaniel Popper, noting that a number of boutique trading firms are using poker to both recruit and train young traders. 
Apparently, trainees at Philadelphia's Susquehanna International are given two poker handbooks when they're hired and spend a week playing the game before they start to trade. Said what's described as training honcho, Paul McCauley, it's a real science. I I guess so, kind of like the Loch Ness Monster is a real monster. But notes the article, uh, upstart Toro trading goes Susquehanna one better. Even the most promising candidates aren't hired until they've actually played a few poker hands with the firm's partners. Toro partner Dannon Robinson says that a lack of interest in poker is a red flag to him, adding, it's almost the equivalent of not reading the Wall Street Journal. And you wonder why this country is in the outhouse when it comes to our economy. These are the financial geniuses directing our trading policy. These are the guys that are so sharp, they have to be paid $200 million or they'll just, they'll just, they'll just take their talent somewhere else. Who'll pay them $100 million for this type of insightful thinking? I'm, I, I don't know. But uh, let, let's take from the Only in America file the following story from uh, Matt Richel of the New York Times, who notes that uh, students' current digital fixations are raising actual worries about their learning. Subheading of the article notes that students have always faced distractions and time wasters, but computers and cell phones and the constant stream of stimuli they offer pose a profound new challenge to focusing and learning. Article notes, Dateline Redwood City. On the eve of a pivotal academic year in Vishal Singh's life, he faces a stark choice on his bedroom desk, book or computer. By all rights, Singh, a bright 17-year-old, should have already finished the book, which is Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. That was his summer's reading assignment, but he's managed 43 pages in two months. He typically favors Facebook, YouTube, and making digital videos, which I personally find especially sad because Cat's Cradle is such a great book. Singh was quoted as saying, On YouTube, you can get a whole story in six minutes. A book takes so long. I prefer the immediate gratification. So the speculation is that young, developing brains might become more easily habituated than adult brains to constantly switching tasks and thus be less able to sustain attention. This article goes on to note that uh, at uh, Singh's high school, as everywhere else, it's not uncommon for students to send hundreds of text messages a day or spend hours playing video games, and virtually everyone is on Facebook. I think we've got to look into this with our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones, himself an educator and the host of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. I'm sure he'll have a thing or two to say on this subject. Dr. Andy's show can be heard every Wednesdays at 5 o'clock on KDVS. By the way, to change the subject rather dramatically, I'm sorry to note that no one gave us any feedback on the appearance by Mickey Rooney out in Granite Bay on November 5th. So I was doubly depressed to learn that Mickey and Jan Rooney were putting on a show in Carson City uh, on November 27th, but time constraints uh, did not allow me to make the trip up to see him. I would love to see Mickey Rooney, a guy at age 90, still entertaining. He was the number one movie star in the world for three consecutive years back in the 1930s. And I confess we would love to have him on this show. We'll see what we can do. Article about uh, Rooney by Mel Shields in the, in the Sacramento Bee kind of caught my eye. He uh, is famous for being married. He and Liz Taylor. Mickey Rooney was married eight times. 
But apparently he finally got it right on the eighth try. He's been married to his current wife, Jan, for the last 37 years. And if you think I'm poking fun at Mickey, I am not. We're going to try and get him on this show. I think he'd, he'd be a wonderful guest. Speaking of that, in 2011, we got to bring on some guests we've been talking about for years. People like Walter Alvarez from UC Berkeley, who, along with his father, Louis, postulated a generation ago now that uh, the dinosaurs may have been killed off by an asteroid strike 65 million years ago. There was an excellent program on television uh, last month on, on this topic. The Who Done It regarding the dinosaurs is apparently not a settled matter. At least one famous dinosaur hunter talked about the famous KT boundary where everything changes. There's a clay layer all around the world. And said, if that's what killed off the dinosaurs, you ought to be finding dinosaur bones throughout that layer. And you don't. Which I'm not sure is a big uh, stop on the theory. But uh, there is some other evidence that that's not the whole story. Other candidates for the demise of the dinosaurs are the Deccan Traps of India, giant lava eruptions which took place at almost the same time as the uh, formation of the Chicxulub Crater down in Yucatan. And there's some other evidence for uh, uh, natural processes of uh, continental drift uh, playing a role. At least one book out last spring noted that... um, The ancient seas of the Earth reached a critically low point 65 million years ago as the continents got closer, and they may have blocked global oceanic circulation, making the Earth become a lot colder. One interesting theory was that as this was taking place, land bridges may have opened up, and diseases might well have spread from dinosaur species in one continent to another, much much as the case where several centuries ago, explorers went to lands and uh, passed diseases along that wiped out uh, the populations which had no immunity. It seems as though the, the demise of the dinosaurs may have been a triple or quadruple whammy. And yes, we love this kind of stuff on this program. Mr. McMillan does point out there is at least a fifth theory in this, uh, as, as postulated by cartoonist Gary Larson. We showed a stegosaurus, and a pterodactyl, I think, hiding out behind an <laughs> outcropping of rocks, smoking. As I was watching this television program describing this, uh, this meteorite crash and how much hot rock would have you know, rained back down on all parts of the Earth starting fires, and they, and they do find bits of carbon all over the world uh, in this layer, indicating there were fires at this time. I realized I may have bits of, of a smoking gun related to this uh, right in the house. I went over to my display case and pulled out some tektites, which I purchased in Thailand many years ago. Tektites are glassy bits of rock which which look as though they've been hurled through the atmosphere at high rates of speed because there's chunks missing off their surface, such as what you see with meteorites. The thing is that it's made of glass. It appears to be rock that was superheated, basically turned into lava, and then cooled again in the atmosphere, you know. The speculation is that tektites are formed all over the world when there are impacts. The stone in the tektite thus is uh, mostly earth rock, but probably contains some extraterrestrial material mixed in. They make some pretty cool souvenirs. They're pretty pieces of rock, and uh, if you don't have one for your own personal rock collection, I'd, I'd suggest you go out and get one. And I should point out that that particular opinion, like all the opinions expressed on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. Although, you know, I'll bet dollars to donuts at least one of the regions has some tektites. It's just, just a gut feeling I have. Let's hear from our old pal Will Durst, shall we? Well, 
Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few hot tips for your Christmas shopping list. There's a couple of us this year who are still struggling to climb out of financial holes so deep we're being tickled by redwood roots and not going to be that difficult to shop for. You know, the typical clothes, food, money. But Wall Street is handing out record bonuses again. So what do you get for the person who has everything? Perhaps you feel the gifts you lined up for your financial planners won't be up to snuff. Well, I'm here to convince you to let those worries go. After all, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> no, seriously, I've come up with a list of prospective Christmas gifts that any Wall Street tycoon would be honored to find under their holiday shrubbery. So here we go with the top 10 Christmas gifts for your Wall Street broker buddies. Number 10. A peacock, the double delight of being both the ultimate symbol of excessive extravagance and extremely difficult to care for. Number nine, a copy of George W. Bush's autobiography, because everybody can use a good laugh during the holidays. Number eight, a kidney, buy it from a poor person, always good to have one around just in case. Number seven, a Lexus, according to TV, that's what rich people give each other for the holidays. Don't forget the big red bow. Number six, a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, a real get-out-of-jail-free card. You gotta know somebody who knows somebody. Number five, a Fabergé egg. There's only 42 that have been known to survive. Go for it. Check out eBay. Or just ask Meg Whitman. Number four, a pair of Bernie Madoff's underwear. Or just grab any old pair of size 36s and say they're his. Hey, it's what he would have done. Number three, a signed first edition of Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, because nothing else says Masters of the Universe quite like it. Number two, a U.S. Senator. Oh, sure, they probably already have one socked away somewhere, but who's ever thrown out a senator because they went bad? And the number one Christmas gift for your Wall Street broker buddies, a soul. Odds are they've sold, misplaced, or ruined theirs. And you'll never have to worry it'll be re-gifted. Just realize in advance, they'll probably sell, misplaced, or ruin this one as well. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Thanks, Will. This is a good time for a break, so let's take one. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. (laughs) 